Did you know 90% of top performers have a high emotional intelligence and a higher than average annual income? As one of the most highly valued skill sets, emotional intelligence or EI is what distinguishes outstanding leaders. Deepen your EI skills today with the Daniel Goleman Emotional Intelligence course, a 12-week online course to develop your inner capacity, become a stellar leader, and build high-performance teams. Save your seat and $50 with the coupon code PODCAST. Learn more at courses.keystepmedia.com. That's courses.key stepmedia.com. Don't forget to enter coupon code PODCAST at checkout for $50 off your registration. So, Maya, what happens when you wanted something to go one way and then it goes another? Do something else or try again. What happens when you fall down? Cry and get a boo bleeding, go home and get a band-aid. Can you tell me a story about something in your life that changed? That Josie was born and that was a big change. It was a big change? Mm-hmm. Actually, I have one more big change. Oh. That I started not napping. That was a huge change. How did that feel? It felt good. Yeah? How do you feel when things change? Um, well, when I get my way and I get another chance, I feel happy. It's exactly true that some things you like that they change, some things you don't like that they changed. That was great. Let's do it again, people. (laughs) Roll back. (laughs) Welcome to First Person Plural, Emotional Intelligence and Beyond. I'm Hanuman Goldman, and I'm joined by EI correspondent Elizabeth Solomon. Hey, Liz. Hey, Hanuman. I'm really glad to be with you here for this final episode in our summer leadership series before we launch into what will be our second season this fall, which is very exciting. This episode includes an excerpt from Thriving on Change, a series of conversations about the proven skills, tools, and practices that ensure leaders expertly respond to uncertainty, conflict, and inevitable distraction. Today's interview is a little bit different because we're featuring a conversation between Dan and Elad Levinson, an expert in applying neuroscience and cognitive sciences to leadership effectiveness. But unlike most of our interviews in which Dan is the interviewer, today Dan is the interviewee. And so this is just a really nice way to wrap up our first season here by Hearing Dan do a little bit of a recap on his work and emotional intelligence, he touches on his book, Focus. 
He talks a lot about mindfulness in this episode. And so it's, a, it's again, a little bit different than what we've normally done, but a great way to end our first season. I agree. It's so nice to hear Dan's thoughts directly about a lot of these things that we've heard him ask other people about it. Listening to this interview, I'm reminded because this is an interview that we recorded several years ago, but the stuff that they talk about is always true for, for people uh, in leadership and uh, anywhere in an organization. I love that you said that this was recorded a while ago and is, you know, remains relevant because one of the things that they talk about in this interview is VUCA, which is a term I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be familiar with. And VUCA is an acronym that stands for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And I actually looked back and thought, when, when was it that VUCA first became a term? And it was in 1987, which I found to be really interesting because, you know, here we are sitting in an incredibly volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous time. And yet, it's always been that way to some degree, right? Uncertainty, change, these are, these are the things that everybody in, in history have uh, had to address in their life. And VUCA, I guess it's not such a, it's, it's not a, a surprise. It's not like a big um, mystery why these last five years have felt such that the term VUCA has come to, to prominence. It feels like, and, and they actually talk about this in the interview with all of the information that we're getting now. Mm -hmm. uh, it feels so much like more is happening and, and we're, there's less of us to take all of that in. And, uh, and I think that helps with that VUCA feeling. Yeah, I think that's true. And I also think, you know, the problems have gotten larger and more complex. I mean, I just reading the headlines this morning, you know, of the wildfires and just, I mean, what's happening with the climate crisis. That's just one example, right? Um, another example that we can think of is the great reckoning that we're really doing here in, in the U.S. with systemic racism, right? Which certainly isn't new, but is something that people are grappling with um, in a more direct and uh, hopefully proactive way. Um, and, and just to clarify, you know, I think one of the hard things about living in this climate of volatility and uncertainty and complexity is that it really makes it hard to make strategic decisions, right? It's like the climate is constantly changing. We can't necessarily look to the past and say, okay, well, that worked X amount of times because what worked before may not actually work in the future. And so it really does, you know, position leaders and, and really all of us um, to really have to think about what are the competencies that, that we need in, in order to move forward without being able to make a really clear long range plan all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in that situation, the concretes aren't reliable anymore. And so what, what becomes reliable are the, the tools and inner resources that we have that can address any given moment and the, the degree to which we are able to, to do that with balance and with some conscious decision-making is the degree to which we are effective. Yeah, it's interesting. I wrote about this earlier in the year, but in the first weeks of the pandemic, Google searches for the term resilience more than doubled, which I just think is a reflection of you know where we've all been of thinking, how do we tolerate ambiguity? How, how do we cultivate resilience? That makes sense. What is that yeah. thing that might be able to help me right now when I feel like the world's caving in? 
Resilient? Was that resilience? What does that actually that. mean? What does that, what does that actually mean? <laughs> Anyways, yeah. people talk about it like it's great. Yeah. yeah. In Dan's work of emotional intelligence, resilience is related to the competence of adaptability, right? And so when we're adaptable, we're really able to meet challenges as they arise. We can greet new situations with innovative ideas. We can juggle multiple demands and we can really just stay laser focused on our goals while staying open to how they're achieved. And, and that's a lot of what Elad and Dan are talking about in this interview when they're talking about how do we cultivate focus? Like you said, how do we have some level of emotional balance so we don't get totally thrown off by anxiety, but we're able to actually access the part of us that can get creative about solutions. Let's launch into Elad Levinson talking with Dan Goldman. Thank you for joining us, and today we're going to be interviewing Daniel Goleman. And it would be easy for me to spend about the next 10 minutes telling you all about Dan's accomplishments, because there are many. But rather than do that, let me say something personal. In the 90s, I found myself in organizations as a consultant really wanting to be able to explain to leaders why it was important for them to have emotional awareness. And I found myself really lacking in the ability to communicate that effectively. And then along came Dan's book, Emotional Intelligence. And I remember grabbing, I think I was in an airport and I grabbed it off the shelf and I was reading it on the plane. And as I was going through it, I kept on saying, oh, this is exactly what I was looking for. This is exactly what I was looking for. We're really lucky to have Dan with us today. Welcome. Well, I'd like to thank you, Elad, because I've watched the burgeoning interest in mindfulness in the business community and uh, how people are bringing that in. And I've always felt there was the need for someone like yourself, who's very well grounded in HR, in organizational realities. You've lived in that world most of your career, but also well grounded in terms of attentional training and how the two intersect and how they can help each other. You know, you've spoken eloquently about these three focus of attention, internal, relational or external, mm. and outer. Right. And I'm really curious about, can you give us examples of what happens when people don't have that kind of focus? <laughs> sure. So, so my argument is that uh, every leader needs a triple focus. I, I've written about it in Harvard Business Review. It was one of the theses of my book, Focus, the Hidden ingredient and excellence, I really think it is the hidden ingredient. Uh, a, a leader needs to be able to tune in and manage themselves. They need to tune into other people and handle that relationship effectively. They also need an awareness of the larger systems in which they operate, their business sector, their technologies and how they're changing. You know, you don't want to be blindsided by change. The economy generally, the society, all of these, those are systemic changes. So good leaders, effective leaders, star leaders need all three. Let me give you some examples of people who didn't have it. I was talking to the CEO of... Uh, a national, a nationwide real estate company. Uh, they do commercial real estate. And he said, you know, 
once I started using this mindfulness tool, the self-observation tool, I realized something about myself, and that is I blow up at people who bring bad news, who don't meet my expectations, and it ruins the relationship. It's terrible. And he said, and what I was able to understand through that self-monitoring was that it was my own fear of failure. I was in a state where I got scared, and that made me lash out at people. So I've stopped doing that. So this is a guy who's in a very powerful position. There's that leadership ripple effect, you know, and the CEO is doing this to the direct reports. It ripples out through the organization. And it was having very bad impact on the company, and he was able to manage it better because he was using the kind of tools you're offering. The, the second um, example has to do with tuning into the people you're impacting, the people you're leading. Uh, and this is empathy, of course. And I was speaking to a woman just this weekend who was at a workshop that I was giving with my wife. And she said, you know, um, I, I work directly for the head of marketing <clears throat> for major pharma, and um, I'm about to leave. I'll be the ninth. Mm. He doesn't understand why. But he has the habit of focusing only on quarterly sales. He doesn't care how you get it. He'll, you know, he's abusive. He focuses only on what you didn't do. He doesn't praise people. There was an HBR article uh, about this, which was done by some colleagues of mine at the Hay Group. Uh, it was called Leadership Run Amok. Mm -hmm. And it's someone who is a pace setter, who themselves is a real go-getter, a perfectionist. They're very self-critical, but they see other people through that lens of criticism. That's a distortion in empathy. We'll talk about what good empathy looks like, but that's bad empathy, and it has a disastrous effect on, on an organization because talent flees that kind of a leader. And then the third example, uh, I've just seen it twice now. I, I know uh, some people who used to be a very high at... Uh, research in motion. Those were the BlackBerry people. And they had a real flaw in their systems awareness. They didn't see the new technology. They thought mm. that what had made them so successful going in, well, which was their, their phones had superb engineering, their network was completely secure, and so on, they thought that that would capture the market. They didn't realize the companies had started letting people bring their own phones, my mm -hmm. iPhone and so on, and hook up with a company network. And they didn't see it coming. They saw it way too late to change. And, you know, RIM has now lost that huge market share they had. And uh, I also was talking recently to someone uh, at a, a tech company, one of the biggest tech companies, and he said, we're having problems with that systems awareness, too. We're too focused on just doing the things that work for us all along. Mm -hmm. And we're not innovating. We're not exploring. We're not looking for what's the next big product, the next big breakthrough. We have to buy our way out of those misses. It's very expensive. And what they do is, so far, what they've done is, uh, you know, something new will come along, cloud computing. Well, some companies miss cloud computing. So they had to buy a company mm -hmm. that had was there when that broke. And it's not a good way. What you want to do is be the innovator. And now they're trying to switch from being a company that just exploits what works to also exploring, to looking around, to catching the new trend as it's about to hit. 
You know, I think these are terrific examples, Dan. And, um, you know, I know that part of the audience are probably somewhat skeptical mm. about this area called mindfulness and mm -hmm. self-awareness. Mm -hmm. What would you say to them? Well, uh, first of all, I'd say I understand the skepticism because you didn't learn about this in getting your MBA. Mm. You haven't heard about this before in the business world. This is something new that's come along. How do you know it's worth trying out? And my background uh, is in part in science journalism. I've been following the science of this, tracking it for decades actually. And in recent years, the new scientific findings are really convincing that the ability to self-monitor, the ability to observe yourself and have a choice point that you didn't have before is absolutely crucial. Uh, I, I was in a school where they teach these skills to kids, which I'm really in favor of. And one of the ways they do it is that uh, on the wall of every classroom, there's a stoplight. It says when you're about to get upset or when you're upset and you notice it, remember the red light, stop calm down and think before you act. Mm. Yellow light, pick a range of things you could do and think what the consequence would be. Green light, pick the best one and try it out. That is so much better than just doing the first impulse of thing that you think <laughs> of, particularly when you're upset, when you're scared, when you're angry. That part of the brain makes bad decisions. So every manager, everyone in, in any position in a company needs to be able to have this capacity to notice, how am I feeling now? And if you're operating from the worst part of yourself, stop, calm down, think before you act. Mm. And that's one of the key skills that you'll learn. Yeah, I love um, the way that Rick Hansen talks about this. He calls it using your best brain. That's very nice, yeah. Why does authenticity matter to leaders? You want to be able to trust the person that you're working for. And trust means that there's not a discrepancy between this person and what they say and do and what they actually believe, who they are. So authenticity means you're aligned, that what you do, what you say comes from the heart. The authentic leader can uh, you know, describe a mission we all are inspired by that motivates us because he or she believes in it. Mm. And not only that, that leader can articulate it in a way that resonates within us. So that it, you know, it, it sparks us in the same way. That kind of leadership, that authentic leadership, allows a leader to guide people in a way where they're motivated, where they care, where they're engaged, where they can be passionate. And that alignment also allows a leader to give a very effective, clear kind of feedback. When you did this, your, your performance let us down and getting to that goal we all buy into. Mm -hmm. I'd prefer you do this. Hang on, maybe I can help you acquire those skills, whatever it may be. It opens a conversation that people can be can feel good about, even when they're getting corrective performance feedback. And every leader has to do that too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it leads me to want to ask you a little bit about some of the earlier work that you did around emotional intelligence. And I'm curious, is there a connection in your mind between mindful awareness? and emotional intelligence? And if so, what is it? You know, when I wrote the book Focus, I immersed myself in the new uh, research, as I said, on, on mindfulness, on attention generally. And I realized something. It was big aha for me. Attention has been 
implicit in the emotional intelligence model from the beginning. I just never noticed. I was inattentive to attention itself. So what I've done uh, in my more recent work is to highlight the way uh, attention to ourselves, self-monitoring, is the the basis of self-awareness. It's also the basis of self-management. You can't manage yourself if you don't tune into yourself. People who are good at keeping their eye on the target, ignoring distractions, knowing what matters now and what's irrelevant, and directing other people toward what matters. People who can keep their eye on the goal even when it gets tough, even when there are obstacles, keep coming back. People who are resilient, who have grit. These are the most effective leaders in the long term. All of that depends on self-awareness. And then there's empathy, which is that self-awareness, but applied outward. It's attention to the other person, really tuning into them. What are they thinking? What are they feeling? This lets you really resonate. You have the most effective interactions if you have that full empathy. So attention is key. One of the things that I've heard from leaders is that uh, empathy can also be derailing, meaning that you know, from their perspective, mm-hmm. that if I have too much empathy, mm-hmm. then I won't correct the behavior. Yeah, yeah. There is basic confusion about what we mean by empathy. The science shows us very clearly there are three kinds of empathy. One is cognitive empathy. That means I understand how you think about this. I get your perspective. I can take your point of view. This is highly important for good communication. You know the mental models a person uses. You know what, how to put something to them in a way they'll understand. Every leader needs to be good at cognitive empathy. The second kind of empathy draws at a different part of the brain. It's also very important. It's emotional empathy. I feel what you're feeling. I feel it in my body. This is done by social circuits, rather circuits in what's called the social brain, which is newly discovered. But it's a very powerful part of the brain. It automatically tunes into the other person, picks up what they're doing, what they're intending, what they're feeling, and duplicates that in our body if we're good at this. That gives us added data. Every leader needs to know how what they're doing, how what they're saying affects the other person. You know, does it make them feel good, make them feel bad, make them bored? You You need to know that. And you need to know it also because... People work best when they're in their positive zone. That's when they get into flow. That's when they have you know, optimal performance. And in a way, the leader's fundamental task is to help people get and stay in that positive zone. Mm-hmm. Well, how are you going to know if they're there? One way is through this kind of emotional empathy. The third kind is what you might call goodwill. It's empathic concern. It's caring about the other person. That makes you the kind of leader that people want to work for. Mm-hmm. If you don't care about your direct reports, about the people who are under you, or you know, whether you're a manager on up, it alienates people. You can't lead effectively when people feel you don't care about them. So empathic concern or goodwill is another part of every leader's toolkit. So when uh, people say, well, you know, can't empathy backfire? What I think they mean is this, that there's some people for whom emotional empathy is too strong. That, for example, if they're dealing with negative customers or people who are complaining or people who are stressed out, mm-hmm. upset, they pick that up and they don't metabolize it. What I mean is they don't recover from it. Mm-hmm. They're not resilient. So they end up actually getting emotionally exhausted 
and they can burn out. This is a huge problem, by the way, in the healing professions, in medical sector and so on. I've talked to, I've given talks to um, medical groups about this because they have to keep these people going. But it's true in any organization. So you want to be able to have all, you know, operate on all four cylinders of emotional intelligence, self-awareness, self-management, that helps you with empathy. Because if you get this wash of negativity, it's your self-management that's going to help you handle it. Can you help us make the connection between the management of stress and these tools? One of the things that the science tells us is the better people are at mindfulness, at monitoring themselves, the more quickly they recover when they get upset, Mm. when they're stressed out. And this has to do with uh, set points in the brain that change as you uh, learn how to calm yourself, as you learn how to just observe what you're thinking and feeling without getting caught up and captured by those thoughts, but just noting that they're there. So a very important skill internally, and it helps you recover from stress. And so the term that you're using, this self-awareness, one of the tools that, we, that I'm teaching in the class is noticing and naming. Good. Noticing and naming is fundamental, and it does something. Let me tell you about some brain research that's very relevant to that. This was done at UCLA, and what they found was that when you are upset and you name, I'm angry, I'm scared, I'm frustrated, you shift the energy from the emotional circuitry to the part of the brain that has what's called cognitive control, the executive function, the part of the brain that is more rational, that decides what to do, that plans, that learns. And you literally disempower the emotional circuitry. So you lower the energy. It's it's an extremely powerful internal act, that naming. So is there some place that you've learned where leaders should not focus? I mean, you talked about some of the ways in which leaders should focus. Are there places where the attention of leaders shouldn't go, because if they go there, it just doesn't help. You know, uh, today, leaders are so uh, overpressured by back-to-back meetings, incoming information of all kinds, phone calls, emails, texts, meetings, texts. It, it all happens at once. It's very confusing. And the big challenge for attention in leaders today is sorting out what's urgent and important from what's a distraction right now. Mm -hmm. And not only that, putting it all aside for some time during the day when I can just be with myself, reflect, and get stuff done that I have to get done. Mm -hmm. Every time you pay attention to an email, a text, a phone call, you're turning over your attention to someone else's agenda. It means you've lost that time for yourself. Well, is it always that important? Can it wait? Can you know, can you put it aside? The answer is almost always yes. So I think what leaders need to do in terms of managing their own attention is to decide what matters now and have the strength of will to, in a, good, in a way that has goodwill, mm-hmm. tell people, you know, I'll get to that, but just not just now, and put it aside so they can protect their own attentional space. So... You're speaking to an issue that I've heard so often from the leaders that I work with, which is a a feeling of time starvation. That's right. And it seems to be that you're suggesting that time starvation is a perceptual matter. 
I mean, is that is that something that I could draw? You know, from? time starvation uh, is both founded in reality and a function of how we look at it, mm-hmm. our frame on it. The reality is that people on average today take in five times more information than 15 or 20 years ago. Mm. That does shrink time available. It takes time to take in information. Uh, There was an observation made 20 or 30 years ago that what information consumes is attention. So a wealth of information means a poverty of attention. That's... That's the fact of life today. That's why I feel it's so important for any manager, any leader, anybody to be strong about and forceful about these are the boundaries of my attention now. I'm not going to let myself be seduced by the wealth of information. I'm going to get done now what I need to get done and only pay attention to what's relevant to that. So I'd like to take mindful awareness, mm-hmm. focus, and attention mm-hmm. in generating and cultivating goodwill. And I'd like to ask you specifically about each one. Great. So one of the things that I think is important in this area of mindful awareness is to actually understand what it is and how one begins to train in that. Well, I think it's important to understand what mindless awareness is ah, first. Great. So mindlessness is uh, really typical of our everyday state, where our mind wanders freely, uh, whatever feelings take us over, take us over, and we act from them. Uh, That's called ordinary awareness. It's, It's also, from a certain point of view, a little mindless, and it's mindless in this way. It means that what happens to us and in us and what we do is directed by forces outside us or random forces within us. But if you want to be focused, if you want to be effective, you can't just let any old whim or whatever that comes along run you. You need to make some choices, and the choices are internal. And in order to make that choice, you need to know what's going on inside me now. Is this where I want to be, or can I be somewhere better? That act is called mindfulness. Mm. Noticing what's going on within you and using that information to manage yourself better. Because self-management starts with self-awareness. And mindfulness is the toolkit for that. Well, it raises a question that I've heard several times, which is, is mindfulness a common human characteristic? Or do we have to kind of learn it from scratch? You know, mindfulness is both a common human characteristic and something that can be improved by learning. Everybody has the capacity to notice what's going on within them. We typically don't, but we can. Mindfulness training, however, means that we're improving a natural ability. Everybody can throw a ball, but you know the best pitcher in the, in the major leagues has practiced it 10,000 hours or more with an expert coach. And we, in the same way, we can improve our mindfulness skills by practicing and particularly getting feedback from someone who's more experienced in it. I may come back in a moment to a little bit more about that, but I want to ask you a little bit about focus and attention. Mm -hmm. Um, When I think of those words, I think of really more kind of laser honing in, really sharp. Sure. But isn't part of focus and attention also learning how to relax? 
And what's the importance of that? Well, in the book Focus, I, I make it clear that uh, there are different kinds of attention. There are different ways to focus. Each has its value and each has its downsides. So, for example, when you talk about a focused leader, you typically think about someone who's got his or her eye on the goal, who's doing what's needed to get the job done today, to meet the target, whatever it is. That's one kind of focus. It's a concentrated focus, and it means that other things are ruled out. They're distractions. On the other hand, if you want to be creative, if you want to innovate, you need a completely different kind of focus. You need what's called open focus, where you randomly let things come up in a very free, uncontrolled way, because at some point in that process, you're going to find two elements that have never been combined before, put in before in a novel way that's useful. That's called creativity. That's a creative act. And that won't happen when you're focused in that concentrated focus because it's a different part of the brain. It's the part of the brain that ignores all of the things that might have been come up and put together. So you, right there, both of those are important for business, but each in its own place, each in its own time. There are trainings that people can go through that teach relaxation skills. Mm -hmm. Is that the kind of um, tools that one could use to be able to put themselves in a more creative state? The creative state, I think, is associated with relaxation. You know, the annals of creativity in math and science are full of stories where someone struggled to solve a complex equation for three years and got the answer while he was walking his dog along the beach in a relaxed state. Because it's in that relaxed state when we're naturally more, most open and aware. Mm -hmm. So you can learn methods for relaxing uh, that will get you into that state. There are a lot of things that will. However, methods for relaxation don't train attention. Those are two different things. If you train your mind in mindfulness, for example, train your attention in mindfulness, you get both. It calms you. That's the relaxation. But it also improves the attentional circuitry of the brain so that you can pay attention in a, in a more effective way, even when you're not practicing the method during a session. So let's move on to the third pillar, uh, generating and cultivating goodwill. Um, you talked about empathy, and um, some of the words that come to my mind are warmth, friendliness, and it seems like some environments have that, some corporations sure. have those kind of characteristics. Mm -hmm. Do you think that one person can make a difference if they're warm and friendly, but the culture that they work in isn't? Everybody makes a difference, and everybody's state makes a difference because states are contagious from person to person. Mm. Leaders are more effective in spreading states generally because people naturally put most importance on the most powerful person in the group. And uh, this kind of positivity that you describe is really important for group performance. There's some objective data on this. There's a woman at the University of New Hampshire, uh, Vanessa Druscat, who studies teams and productivity. And she's found in many different studies that the most highly productive teams have the greatest harmony. They have the most positivity. Mm -hmm. They like each other. They enjoy doing things with each other. They have fun. It's, it's a, you know, work is play in a sense. Mm -hmm. But also, they can be tough with each other. They can be honest. They can say, uh, you know, uh, Joe's not performing up to his usual today. We're going to have to have Sue take his place. 
but you need to be realistic at the same time. They also don't let issues simmer. Uh, so it's not a kind of a la-la harmony. It's a harmony based on the fact that, yeah, we know that uh, you know, Jose and uh, Juan over here uh, really are having a problem with each other. Let's talk about it. Let's get it out in the open. Let's solve it. We don't want to let that hang us up. So they do all of these things, which overall create a huge force of positivity and harmony because they're not pretending to be harmonious. Mm -hmm. They're dealing with the problems. So it's a genuine, solid harmony. I really want to underscore what you just said. One of the basic assumptions in the course is that you can't generate and cultivate goodwill if you're not willing to deal with conflict. Is that what you're saying? I would say that the goodwill that you generate may be fragile if you don't deal with conflict. Okay. Leaders today are facing what one person in Harvard Business Review called VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. All of those to me suggest that the kind of change that leaders are dealing with is way more difficult than it might have been, let's say, 10 years ago. What do you know about that? And what would you like to tell our audience about how leaders deal with that? Well, there are two um, ways to deal with change, broadly speaking. One is to see it coming, and one is to manage it when you didn't see it coming. <laughs> Seeing it coming means that you have a kind of like systemic awareness, this outdoor awareness, a focus on the larger systems within which you operate. And you can see where the trends are, where they're going, the social trends changes in technology and so on, and position yourself to take advantage of the shift that's about to happen. The other way is to be blindsided and have to put the pieces back together, to be in crisis. I remember uh, the, the uh, CEO of Intel who uh, wrote that wonderful book, Only the Paranoid Survive, uh, Andy Grove, Andy Grove uh, talked about a couple of times in the history of their corporation when they might have died when they were blindsided by change. And he said, what made the difference was how the top management team handled their own emotions. Mm. If we had panicked, if we had froze, if we had overreacted, we wouldn't be here today. And what that says to me is that the job of a leader in change, particularly when it's a crisis level change, is to first manage yourself because everyone else is looking to you to see, is this more than we can handle? Are we overwhelmed? Is it safe? Are we going to be okay? So you handle yourself. You calm yourself. You see clearly. You see what to do. That lets people around you know we're going to be okay. They can function at their best. They don't have to panic. The other thing, just generally, forget the crisis level change. Everyday changes. We're always adjusting to something new. The question is, What's your emotional reaction? How are you taking that? How are you managing that change internally? Are you recovering quickly and staying effective? Are you still, you know, uh, jittery or whatever because of the change? So every manager, every leader, if they're going to be effective during change, needs to be able to adapt well. Adaptivity is one of the competencies that our own research has shown makes leaders star performers. Okay, so I'm sitting here, and um, I'm one of the audience, and I've been listening to this, and I've heard you mention what 
seems like an overwhelming number of new skills that I have to learn. Like, oh my God, I've got to remember mindful awareness and I've got to remember focus. And if there was one that would be a really good place for a leader to start that might be a linchpin in developing others. Sure. Please. Well, in the emotional intelligence research, uh, we find that there are four general domains for leadership competencies. And by the way, you don't have to be great at all of them. The best leaders have their own skill set and they lead well in, in unique ways, depending on where their strengths are across the spectrum. But there's self-awareness, self-management, empathy, social skill. And leaders uh, can be better or worse across that skill set. But what we find is fundamental is a little bit of a surprise. It's self-awareness. Mm -hmm. So I'd start there. I'd say that being able to tune into yourself which is the key to managing yourself. It's also the key to empathizing. Tuning into yourself, monitoring yourself, mindfulness, it's being called now, is the single most useful key. Is there a question? Again, I'm sitting, I'm in the audience, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm listening to you say that. Is there a like an inquiry, a question, that could really help me start on that path of self-awareness? Like if there was one single question that I as a leader could be asking myself kind of in the background. Yeah, it would be something like, what am I operating from right now? Is it from good feeling and goodwill? Is it from anxiety and fear? Is it from anger and frustration? That's an extremely important question and a fundamental question for all of us. Mm-hmm. So just to reiterate something that you said earlier, Dan, that I think is coming back right now, which is that there's this process because it, it, it's, it's really kind of like a two or three step. Hmm. One step that you've mentioned is noticing. So you're, you're, you uh -huh. have this awareness sure. of what your internal state is. Right. And then you're somehow you're naming that to yourself. Well, yeah. And it's noticing without judgment. You don't want to notice and react. Oh, damn, I'm mad. It's not like that, noticing. It's just observing neutrally. And then that, as I said before, that simple act of noticing, if you're in a distressing state, an, an upset state, disempowers the state. You start to recover the moment you notice it. But also then you can decide what to do. In the stoplight that they use in schools, it's stop, calm down, think before you act. Mm. It gives you the time internally to think before you act. Mm -hmm. is, there's a term that I, that I use in the course, which is inclining your mind. Is this similar to what you're talking about, that, that there's some shift that you make when yes. you notice yes. that you go somewhere else mentally? Is, is that true? I, I like that phrase, inclining your mind. And it, I, I think of it in two senses. One is uh, that you can incline your mind toward a more effective response to the situation. And the other is that the more you practice this, the more the mind inclines in that direction. Mm. So, Dan, one of the things that I'm, I could surmise from what you're saying is that these uh, skills that you've been talking about require practice. Is that true? Yeah. In every domain of ability uh, needs practice to achieve the level of expert. We know that 10,000 hours, that magic number, a little bit of a fiction, but it's, it's true in general. Uh, the more you practice, the better you get at anything, you know, whether it's your golf stroke or whether it's empathy. And so 
the practice, however, needs to be what's called smart practice. It needs to be designed to develop particularly that skill. Sometimes people do not so smart practice. If you practice a really bad golf stroke for 10,000 hours, you'll be, a, you know, a duffer. Mm-hmm. It's not going to make you a pro. So you need feedback. It helps to have an expert. It helps to have someone who you can turn to with a question, for instance. And it helps to do it consistently. So with mental practice, and we're talking about mental practice, what's important is to make it a priority, to put it in your day, in your daily routine, so that you get to it every day. Otherwise, it's very easy not to do. and You get no practice. And the other thing is to be sure you're practicing in the right way. To, if you can, get some feedback somewhere and see how you're doing. Uh, and if you do that, you're bound to get better. I want to thank you, Dan. One of the great things about being around people like you is that I get to learn. <laughs> I once joked with my wife that this kind of interview is like seeing the movie My Dinner with Andre, <laughs> and that this kind of lively dialogue really is so enhancing well, to me. Uh, thank you. It's been delicious for me, too. This conversation around adaptability and self-awareness is reminding me of this Chinese proverb, and I'm sure some of our listeners have heard this before. And it goes something like this, when the wind of change is blowing, some build walls and others build windmills. The story dovetails really well with what we're talking about in this episode, which is having to pivot and change as the context changes and having to have that larger focus of what's happening outside in the world, what's happening in the larger system so that we can uh, adjust and adapt. Of the companies listed on the Fortune 500 list in 1955, 88% of them were gone by 2014. They went bankrupt, they merged, or they fell from the list due to a decline in revenue. And when you look more deeply into the reasons for this, a lot of it has to do with not being able to adapt, not being able to innovate, not being able to understand where society is headed, where culture is headed, where the market is headed. And this is a large part of um, kind of the case that Dan makes for having a triple focus, triple focus being that inner, inter, and and sort of outer lens on things. Um, And I'm curious if you want to say anything, Hanuman, about your own business and how as a business owner, you've had to maintain that triple focus in order to to really pivot and, and move forward in a way that is sustainable. So when I started in 2006 or five or something, digital downloads were just coming on the scene. I don't believe that the iPhone had been introduced. I think the iPod was around a little bit. And so it was a, it was a really interesting time because the old school publishers, while they were addressing this, Nobody understood quite how much resources it was worth putting into digital downloads. When I started More Than Sound, it was literally my closet. It was a small operation, but because it was so small, I was fairly nimble. And so even though it was just three or four of us, there was enough stability in that, that we were able to direct all of our attention 
So when we had a goal, like we had the ebook that we put out, our first ebook, and there were less than a hundred enhanced ebooks, which means it has media interspersed throughout it. That was just happening. But because we were so small, even though we weren't a big company and we had to like do a bunch of hacks with the technology to get the links in properly, we were able to to put out one of those first 100 enhanced ebooks because we were fully adaptable. Yeah, you're speaking to a couple interesting things, which is like the agility of smaller teams. And also that every time that we get really good at something or we create a sort of routinized way of being, the harder it is to get out of it. And so there's something actually really wonderful about being a small team and also not having a lot to lose. (laughs) So being able to take risks and just innovate and and direct your focus with less friction. That not being ingrained, I think, is... It's a beautiful perspective to have because it's true for uh, organizations, no matter the size of the organization, but it's true for the way that we organize internally as well. And so I guess it's just an opportunity to point that out, that our habits inside also need that sort of attention and addressing if we are going to have the freedom that you're talking about that is truly liberating. You know, one of the things I was thinking about when Dan was talking about adaptability, I often with my clients approach adaptability from trying to understand what is the fear? Is there something that they're afraid of letting go of? And I was thinking a lot about how this plays out on a larger systemic level. And so I was thinking, for example, about systemic racism, right? Where There's a lot of people right now in the business world saying, okay, we have to adapt to this versioning and awareness that we are truly living in a deeply racist and inequitable system um, here in the United States, particularly. And I think, you know, there's a lot of efforts that organizations are making, but I always have this question (laughs) in doing diversity, equity, inclusion work, what are people afraid of letting go of? And just aware that it's particularly white people, particularly white men, particularly white upper-class men, right? We can think about all the ways we divvy up power. I think there can be a bit of a tension sometimes of both like wanting to move in a new direction and being deeply afraid of letting go of one's own power, right? So if I level the playing field, then what becomes of me, right, is kind of the question. And so I even think in a very large scale, when we're dealing with large issues, this question of what are we willing to let go of is ever present. You know, I mean, in a, in a climate change sense, I think like, am I willing to let go of having an Amazon prime package dropped at my door every day because it was easier (laughs) for me to order something online than it was to get it at the store. But it's always so much of ambiguity is the willingness to let go. Absolutely. And I love that you're you're talking about white supremacy because it's such a direct example of holding on to power. I'm going to just offer this idea here. Greed, hatred, and delusion are called the three poisons in Buddhism. And they are considered the uh, drives, the sort of underlying drives for a lot of our behaviors that lead to suffering. And greed is powerful. And I think that it's not, it's not seen enough. We, it's, it's not identified in our day-to-day interactions so much, but in our life, 
the greed of ourselves, the greed that we feel in the world is uh, largely unseen. And so it it is a drive for a lot of our actions that don't necessarily lead to happiness. When we talk about white supremacy and the system of racial oppression that this country has been founded on, it's no wonder that the people in power are holding on to that power because it is scary for people to go into an unknown situation. And I've seen it inside small organizations where power sharing is is scary. As you're talking, I'm making ties between what you're saying and the three types of empathy that Dan talks about, often in his work and in this episode, right? So thinking about cognitive empathy, which is the ability to sort of say, I can understand what you're thinking, right? I can like relate to your mindset or your thought process in some way. Emotional empathy, which is I can understand what you're feeling. And then the third type of empathy, which I think Dan is usually the first to say is kind of the most missing in our society at large and and the hardest for people to cultivate and practice, which is empathic concern, which is I actually want to do something about it, right? There's a sense of uh, inherent goodness or, or even altruism, right? And I'm thinking about as we're talking about this VUCA world and you know, organizations transitioning, one of the things I was thinking about is like purpose washing or greenwashing or any of these practices, right? Where you could say that there's a level of cognitive empathy, right? These companies are like, okay, we know what's on the mind of, of the people, right? There's a level of emotional empathy. Okay. Like we understand how this could be impacting people on an emotional level. And so, you know, even from a branding and marketing perspective, we can communicate right around that. But at the end of the day, this piece of like, do people really care if someone else is harmed in the long run? Are they willing to give something up in order to make sure that other people um, are cared for, are attended to, have access to resources, equity, whatever it is? And as you're talking about greed, I'm thinking, wow, greed, you know, from especially from a, a Buddhist perspective, seems like one of the biggest inhibitors to empathic concern, right? That that's kind of where the rubber meets the road in many ways. I was also thinking, you know, as we're talking about making the adaptation that is required in order to make large scale change, I was thinking a lot about the role of mindfulness in that and noticing without judgment, because inevitably, as we're trying to make large scale change, we are going to do it wrong (laughs) and we are going to fail. Um, And I think like there's a real habituated pattern we have of ruminating in the failure versus being able to just say, okay, I failed and I'm going to move on and sort of um, not getting stuck in a, in a moment of negative self-talk or guilt. It's so easy to be mired in identifying with things that didn't work out. That we do. It's so easy to take that on and to have it weigh us down. People often use the language of non judgment around uh, mindful awareness. My understanding is that awareness itself is not judgmental, but it mm. doesn't mean that judgment doesn't arise. It just, when judgment arises, awareness can be aware of that as well. Mm. Mm. Judgment can be, mm. awareness can be aware of anything. And, and so, because it, it's easy to like, shoot, I, I had a judgment. I'm clearly not doing this right. But that's not, that's not it. It's just when the judgment is there, 
also that. Yeah. Also pay attention to that. It's like a judgment begets judgment kind of uh, track yeah. that word. Yeah. I've been, I've been really working that one a lot this year and just like <laughs> noticing, really noticing. I mean, in all transparency, places where I'm like, why? Oh, I have a value around, uh, you know, non-judgment. And if I really look at my internal thought processes and see judgmental thoughts arise, right? It's like, I've had to really work this year of just being like, okay, that was a thought. And what I do with that thought is actually much more important than getting too stuck on judging the thought itself or staying in that place of kind of guilt or shame. Yeah. You just got to be cool with judging, man. We all judge. We are judginators. We go around. <laughs> judgy, judgy, yeah. judgy, judgy. Judgy make judgers. <laughs> so judgy. <laughs> We love hearing from our listeners, and we'd love to hear about your leadership. Have you stepped into your own leadership in an organization or in some other way in your life? How do you cultivate trust with your colleagues? How do you practice authenticity? And does authenticity have a feeling? Let us know what you're thinking. You can use the SpeakPipe app to record a question or comment for us at firstpersonplural.com. If you're interested in honing leadership skills to become more adaptable and to help with renewal to balance burnout, the Thriving on Change video course with Elad Levinson can be purchased in full from the Keystep Media website at keystepmedia.com shop. It's a really fantastic series of video interviews with brilliant scholars around leadership and mindfulness. And there's a 50% discount code for first-person plural listeners. You can enter the code FPPTOC50. That's FPPTOC5050. And that's at keystepmedia.com. Thanks for listening to First Person Plural. EI and beyond. Subscribe now and sign up for our newsletter to get notified as new episodes are released. This show is brought to you by our co-hosts, Daniel Goldman and Hanuman Goldman, and is sponsored by Keystep Media, your source for personal and professional development materials focused on mindfulness, leadership, and emotional intelligence. Special thanks to Maya, whose voice you heard at the top of the show, and to today's guest, Elad Levinson. For guest bios, transcripts, and resources mentioned in today's episode, check out our episode notes on our website, firstpersonplural.com. This episode was written and produced by Elizabeth Solomon and me, Gabriela Acosta. Episode art and production support by Bryant Johnson. Music in this episode includes Spring by Meter and theme music by Amber Ojeda. Until next time, be well.
If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate our show and submit a review. It helps us spread the word about the show. If you want to go the extra mile to support our show, you can become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can get exclusive access to extended interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Sign up at patreon.com slash firstpersonplural.